Hey, everybody. Welcome back. It's Dr. Sophie to our weekly podcast. Thank you for all of your support, your listening, your emails, your voicemails, all of the things that you do, your texting. Very helpful. I'm glad you're listening. I'm glad you're learning so that we can all join together as a better community for everyone, but especially our children. Last week on our podcast, we talked about the blame game and the key takeaways that you should have gotten, and if you didn't, go back and listen, are that blame is really a culture that we live in. We're kind of born into that whole thing, so it's not something we do on our own. It's there already. Some of it is conscious and unconscious, but that communication skills are the key to navigate it, both from using I statements to making it emotionally safe when you're going to talk to somebody to being able to uh, just be collaborative and want to be a person who's taking a role in that discussion, not just blaming somebody when you think they've done something wrong, having some ownership, and then looking at high-stakes relationships like moms, dads, boyfriends, girlfriends, siblings, why those are the ones that blow up so often and why blame is seemingly the igniter of that because of the emotional investment into those relationships. So it's always important to go back to those communication skills of positive nature Safety, emotionally, I statements, owning your piece of it will really lessen the blame game so that the discussion can really have a better outcome. So good things. Take a listen to The Blame Game. Great podcast. You'll find all podcasts on my website and on iTunes at www.drsophie.com. And on iTunes is my free phone app. So download it. Take a listen. They're all there for you. But this week we're talking about a very interesting topic. Again, the strength of hope. How do we know hope is strong? Why is it strong? Is it a thought? Is hope a feeling? How do we even get it? Can we create it for others? If we don't have it, how do we give it to our children? Great stuff. We're going to talk about it. one 855 now or one 767 4966 We are talking about hope today. And joining me today as an expert in hope is Shane Lopez, PhD, or Dr. Shane Lopez, senior scientist at Gallup and Research Director of the Clifton Strengths Institute. He's going to tell us about all the links between hope, strengths, development, academic success, and overall well-being, because I really want to make it clear, like, where does this hope thing come from? Do we get it because genetically we're set up for it? What if we have depression? How do we find hope? I want to hear what Dr. Lopez has to say with all of those things. Dr. Lopez, you with us? I'm with you, Dr. Sophie. Hey. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. So tell us a little bit about you, and then we'll go to Hope. Sure, sure. I'm a psychologist uh, who once studied intelligence, and I thought uh, people who were smart had good lives, and I met a lot of people who were very smart who had pretty bad lives. Um, and then working with clients actually turned me on to this notion of how hope really makes a difference in our lives. And fortunately, I was studying under... Uh, the world's leading expert on hope at the time, Rick Snyder, and he, he taught me everything I needed to know, and I've just been adding bits to that knowledge ever since. Very nice. So you're saying that IQ and intelligence doesn't have anything to do with happiness, or it well, does? very little, very little. In some of our studies, absolutely nothing. It, it depends on the study, but uh, smart people uh, you know, can be happy. They, they can be not so happy. Um, hopeful people are almost always happy. Ah, so hope is necessary, uh, but not always sufficient for happiness. But it's hard to wake up in the morning um, and be happy if you're not hopeful. Okay, so where do we get it? 
Yeah, where do we get it? That's a great question. So um, certainly, like with other psychological characteristics, um, there, there's a heritability index. So um, it does uh, have a little bit to do with luck of the draw in terms of genetics, but that's only about a quarter of where uh, hope comes from. You know, there's, there's all these other influences. Uh, mom has a lot to do with it. Mom speaks to us in a hopeful way and, and kind of narrates her life and, and gives us a sense that we can, we can make a difference in the world. Um, that helps us a bunch. But really, um, we're wired for hope. Um, we kind of have this natural de- disposition, this optimistic bias to think the future will be better than the present. And then we're kind of, you know, we have this compulsion to make it so. So, you know, does brain chemistry have anything to do with that hopeful wiring that we see the world as there's a better place coming and we have a future? Yeah, I wish we knew exactly how the brain chemistry worked with with hope, um, but we're not there yet. We're getting closer. What we do know is that um, humans are are the only creatures on the planet that can be hopeful, and it's because of their brain makeup. Um, Hmm. So in the rostral and anterior cingulate cortex, um, we kind of sort through these images of the future, and then we push those forward, and ultimately in our frontal lobe we decide, hey, I'm going to act on those because those are meaningful, or no, I'm not going to act on those because they might be somewhat risky or the odds are too long. That is so cool. So humans are the only animal that can really hope? You got it. You got it. And, I, and I'm an animal lover, and I have a wonderful little dog at home, and, and people tell me all the time, oh, if you only knew my dog, yeah. if you only knew my cat, right. it's like, well, do they have a frontal lobe that's well-developed? And they're like, well, I guess not. And I said, okay, then they can't be hopeful because that – you know, that executive functioning, that planning center, really helps us determine how to get to the goals that matter to us most and plan accordingly and then execute those plans. So due to the frontal lobe and executive functioning, that's what really pushes the hope thing, right? Yeah, we need that. We need that. We do see folks with, with frontal lobe damage who um, seem apathetic. Um, I don't know if you've treated any, any folks who, who have had brain injury, but in some of my work when I was studying intelligence, um, frontal lobe uh, dysfunction can cause all kinds of, uh, of problems in life because there, there seems to be no motivation or, or someone's uh, kind of wound up but with no place to go. Okay. Um, so it certainly, you know, the frontal lobe is necessary for hopeful thinking. So many people listening to this either have or have children that yeah. have ADHD, which yeah, is sure. frontal lobe dysregulation. Does that play into hope? You know, um, when I think about that, I, I think about the the children I know with ADD and ADHD, um, and they often have enough will, and they have some ways, but the goal keeps moving around on them. So they're, they're aiming at the goal, and they're moving along the pathways to get to that better future, but then they kind of get distracted, and they lose focus of where the goal is, and, and they sort of peter out. Right. Um, so it's a, it's a challenge. You know, these, these students are amazingly hopeful because, um, you know, school is not built for someone with attention difficulties. Right. And somehow these students, many of them, go to school every day and try to make sense out of, out of that challenging world and do it even when the goal line is moving. Um, so I, I see these students, many of them, as, as amazingly hopeful and, and thriving in situations that many adults, you know, would feel challenged by. Okay, so what you, is it fair to say then that a brain injury is much more in the no-hope zone than somebody with an ADHD kind of oh, frontal lobe issue? Definitely. I, I think, you know, by and large, hope is an equal opportunity resource. 
un- unless we have some kind of um, catastrophic injury that that affects our, our brain function uh, in a major way. But but folks with with ADHD or um, even um, other you know common um, diagnoses that may limit people in terms of their overall functioning can still be hopeful. Oh, got it. Okay. And then what about those people who just kind of are negative in general? Is that a brain chemistry issue? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, we did a study at Gallup. We looked at uh, optimism, which is half of hope. So hope is the belief that the future will be better than the present, plus the belief that you have the power to make it so. Optimism is just that first part, that the belief that the future will be better than the present. And we found that 84% of people on the planet are optimistic. 84% wow. of people that's are a lot. I know, I know. I was surprised by that finding, but we have representative samples of people in 162 countries, and they believe that the future will be better than the present. So there's some good work out there that, that um, convinced me that we have this optimistic bias. We believe the future will be better than the present. Um, the struggle then is to add, to add that other hopeful element, which is uh, believing you have the power to make it so, coming up with the pathways and the willpower needed to create that better future. And is that where the negative piece comes in for people? I think so. I think, so. I think people have that optimistic slant, yeah. and then they get shut they, down. They, yeah, and they run out of will or yeah. they run out of ways. Got it. Let's so take a voicemail. Frustrated. I'm going to take a voicemail real quick with sure. you. Sure. Okay. Hi, Dr. Sophie. My name is Melissa, and I work at a pretty prestigious cancer hospital where we treat a lot of patients with really advanced um, or difficult types of cancer. Um, Obviously, we really like to tell the stories of patients who beat the odds and have their disease go into remission or that might survive, you know, two, three, sometimes ten years longer than their doctors might have predicted. Um, But I find that I have a, a hard time with the families and patients that come in with such high hopes after hearing these success stories, only to find out that their cancer may be so advanced that there is really nothing that we can do for them. Um, I know we need to be transparent with care, but mentally and emotionally, you know, is it really more beneficial to know that death is imminent and that there are no other options left? Or, you know, is it better to leave some type of hope for a miracle intact um, thanks so much for your time. Wow, that's interesting. What do you think? Boy, that's a hardball question yeah. right there. Um, and one I've thought about a lot, and, and um, Dr. Sophie Barber Ehrenreich is an essayist who has written about um, hope um, during her battle with cancer. And she she just got really upset at her providers for trying to, in a sense, fluff up her feathers and make her wish hmm. that things will be better. Um, so from one perspective, Healthcare providers need to be very careful about not engaging in this wishful thinking right. along with patients. Right. At okay. the same time, we have to remember that our patients are, if they're hopeful, they're often realists. So they know the odds. They know the limitations. They know what could happen. Now, when families get involved, that's where sometimes, you know, the communication breaks down because the patient may know that, you know, the odds are against me, but I'm going to do everything I can as a hopeful creature yeah. um, to beat the odds. But the families are oftentimes, and, and I learned this from a pediatric palliative care physician, who said the families are oftentimes the, the folks with the false hope. Right, and the they're, denial. They're, yeah, they're in denial, and, and they're doing this wishful thinking. Um, so, you know, this is where... 
sometimes it's good to have um, you know deeper more complicated discussions with the families of patients when the when the patient allows such um, to make sure that uh, folks know that you're trying as the physician and as the patient to do everything you can to beat the odds but the odds don't change right and, and that they need to be realists along with the physician and with with the patient but gosh that's you know that's so hard to think about um, when folks are really trying to do their best for someone yeah yeah their their loved one some positive thinking yeah that positive thinking doctor can actually undermine their health absolutely and I think it's important that when somebody's coming into a hospital like that or any kind of a care facility for an evaluation and recommendations or a treatment plan to kind of see who's in what camp where's mm -hmm. the patient where's the family and then try to kind of make that assessment because that's really then where you have the discussions you're talking about they're maybe going to be different with each group Till right, everybody gets right. on the same page. All right, Absolutely. let's take a live caller. Thomas, you with us? Yes, I am. Hey, How Thomas. are you both doing today? Good, how are you? Doing great. I'm good, thanks. Um, thanks for taking my call. Uh, in the last couple of months, I've been interviewing uh, a lot. I'm looking for a new job, and um, I feel like hope often is synonymous with positive thinking, like you've been uh, touching on. Um, and I try to be as positive and prepared as I am when I go into my interviews. However, Sometimes those negative thoughts creep in when I'm least expecting it. And I'm wondering if there are any mental exercises uh, or ways of meditating that might help to prevent that. Well, Thomas, question. Thanks, thanks for asking that question. Well, I can tell you what we know about hopeful, think, hopeful thinking and going out uh, to try to get a job. Hopeful thinkers, they come up with um, lots of strategies, number one, to find job opportunities. So it sounds like you're already doing that. So hopeful mm -hmm. people send more resumes out, they apply for more jobs, but they're also more strategic. They don't put a resume in a bottle and then cast it into the ocean. You know, right. they're really more focused and strategic. So once you land that interview, and hopeful people are more likely to land interviews than less hopeful people, once you land that interview, I think you're encountering something very common. Uh, we all get a little um, nervous when we're being evaluated. Um, mm -hmm. So part of, part of accepting that and dealing with that is, is in a sense, kind of a meditative approach. You know, you just kind of let that nervousness flow over you and, and just let it pass um, because it's something very real and, and very normal. So a hopeful person will still feel fear and anxiety. You'll just have more strategies for coming up with it. So there, there are tricks that you can use, certainly. One thing I would do is practice at home with critical interviewers. So have some friends or family come over and, and throw you some hardball questions that, again, the stakes aren't as high because they're friends or family, but, but you can feel some of that anxiety and you can come up with strategies at home for dealing with it so that when you're in the real situation, it's a little easier to do so. How about mm -hmm. mantras? Do they do anything? You know, mantras can do something if, if they're real and authentic. So if you feel as though you need kind of an affirmation or a mantra to help you through a difficult time, um, you know, that, that could work for you, um, but they don't always work. Um, what I like to do sometimes is talk to people who have been through interviews at that particular place before. Um, you know, so um, when I was interviewing for jobs at, at Gallup, I was thinking, okay, I need to talk to people who can kind of desensitize me to this experience. So the more experience you can get on the front end with, through practice, the easier it is to tolerate the fear and anxiety during the interview. Okay. Mm -hmm. you now, what, like, what would you say to people, Dr. Lopez, that 
say that karma thing, like what you put out comes back to you? Like, is that yeah, anything? Yeah, you know, I always endorse anything that works for people. You know, so if they feel as though they're generating good karma and that's coming back to them, um, and that's a meaningful way that they explain, that meaningful way of explaining the world for them, I'm, as a psychologist, I endorse it. Um, for some people, that, that doesn't make a lot of sense. So, um, you know, I'm not one to advocate one approach versus another if I'm not 100% sure it works. Um, but certainly what I have found, and it's somewhat related to what you put out, you get back, hope is contagious. What do you mean? So if you go, up in, go into an interview and they ask you a critical question about how to solve problems in the workplace, well, you're going to come up as a hopeful interviewee, you're going to come up with some great creative examples. And then that interviewer might kind of change their posture a little bit and change their emotional approach to you because now your hope and your ability to solve problems has kind of inspired them and the yeah. interview might go a little easier um, over the course of time. Well, and then they believe in you. Yo, absolutely, absolutely. The, the other thing that I've learned that I use a lot with myself or patients is mindfulness and the, mm -hmm. the Buddha's practice of learning how to be mindful. So, Thomas, I would look into that. That comes somewhat with yoga and Pilates, but mindfulness mm -hmm. is really key because you can take that with you on the way to the interview while you're sitting there, while you're waiting to go in, all that stuff. But it's really a great place and a good practice. Great. That's a great suggestion. All right. All right. Thank you very much. Good luck. Good Get luck. a job. Thanks a lot. Have a good one. You too. All right, let's do a voicemail. Hello, Dr. Sophie. My 85-year-old grandma has always been very posi positive. Her Recently, her health has started to deteriorate, and she has become negative. I was wondering if you thought the two may be related. Is her bad health affecting her outlook on life or the other way around? Is there anything I can do? That's so interesting. So wow. you tell me what you think. Yeah, we, we're finding an interesting link between hope, happiness, and health. So hope is necessary for happiness, and to some extent, happiness is necessary for optimal health. Um, we, we did a study around the world looking at, again, people in 162 countries, and we found that happiness and health was positively related in all countries, and it was most positively correlated in countries with the lowest GDP, oh. in countries where people were the poorest and right. suffering the most every day. So when I think about all of these studies that we've done, you know, that hope to happiness to health link, um, it's getting stronger and stronger in my mind. And, and you know, for the, the caller's grandmother, um, you know, that there's a lot, lot going on in her life as an 85-year-old, and she's thinking about um, kind of the trajectory of her life and, and how she wants to spend the rest of her time. Uh, we have found that folks in their 80s and 90s are very hopeful about the future that they do have left. But there is a complicated interaction between hope and health. And obviously, the more hopeful she is, the easier it will be to cope with her health problems. Um, but depending on how severe the health problems are, she may be losing some willpower and some agency to deal with everyday life. Okay, and now I'm a doctor, forgive mm -hmm. me, but like, don't you think some brain chemistry dysregulation has to do with this or no? Like the dopamine and the, oh, sure. you know, all those boring sure. names. Oxytocin and all, all of that <laughs> stuff is, right. is at work right now, sure, in her, her life. 
No doubt, no doubt. You know, I wish I could again pinpoint exactly how it works and and what's causing what from the brain chemistry uh, at the brain chemistry level. We're just not there yet. You know, psychology, we we kind of dance around the brain chemistry for a long time and then we try to nail it down and and unfortunately we're just not there yet with the hope science. Right. And but you acknowledge that it exists. Oh gosh, yes. And so like there are roles for sometimes the medications we use, antidepressants or the Alzheimer drugs or any of that stuff to look at brain chemistry of maybe shifting it one way or the other kind of lifts the mood, lowers anxiety or whatever. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. All right. So I have one more uh, email I want to read to you. It comes from Mandy in Alabama. Is it wrong to give others hope when there truly is none or very little? Oh, it, wow. It seems like you're just setting them up for disappointment. What do you yeah. think? Well, that's a deep philosophical question. It is, because, um, you know, that's the same thing as earlier. Like, do you give a kid hope who may have cancer and going to die? Or how do we give our children hope in general? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, so philosophically, you know, is it okay to give someone hope when there's truly no hope? You know, I can't think of many situations in which there's truly no hope. Well, that's good. no space for hope, and maybe that's coming from a hopeful person. <laughs> I just can't imagine that, you know? Probably. Um, so I believe there's always kind of a kind of a little ray of uh of hope that's left in someone's life and yes i mean we can be you know good people to them good friends to them and try to make that ray a little stronger um so it depends you know i i i had this these really hard conversations with with uh, physician friends about this topic um and one of them convinced me of this he said sometimes you have to change what you're aiming at Ah, what do you mean? So when when someone is okay, so if you're saying I am going to I need hope to live another 10 years and the fact is this illness will take you in less than 6 months. Well, that's the wrong goal now because the real goal, that goal will never be achieved. But if you want to have a meaningful 6 months and I you you want your friends and family to help you do that, then that's a very important goal that you need a lot of hope to pursue. So then you rally your friends and family around you around this new goal of having a very meaningful uh, six months of life. Um, so I think a lot of times when we hold on to goals that we've been pursuing, old goals, whether they're at school, work, or in life, or near death, um, we are actually practicing a lack of hope because we're, we're working on something that is unattainable, um, and there's somewhat a, a false hope at work. But when we're honest with ourselves and we can change that goal to something else that's quite meaningful, then we can actually rally the troops and, and hopefully attain it with the support of other people. Got it. Okay. So then, as you said earlier, that mom can role model that for their children. I guess dads can too. Yep. Is that the only way we do it with our kids? No. Plus, you know, I get the... a lot of calls from parents. Yeah. And, and they start with, you know, my, my son has lost hope. My daughter has lost hope. And I've learned that that there's one powerful question that I need the parents to answer, um, and that's what is what is she excited about these days? You mean that child or the, the child. mom? Okay, right. What is she excited about these days? And the parents will will you know they'll get pretty reflective, and rarely, rarely, maybe one out of a hundred times does someone say nothing. Right. They'll say, well, she's still excited about gymnastics. She's still excited about fishing. You know, and they'll come up with that one thing. And what a key to teaching hope to children is help them pursue goals that they're excited about. 
And unfortunately, our school systems and other parts of our society are not necessarily built to challenge kids with exciting goals. So, like, grab onto something. Oh, grab onto something. And then instead of talk about it, go do it. I had some college students come up to me two days ago, um, and they said, oh, we have a friend. Um, we think she's low hope right now. Uh, she's getting the proper care from a psychiatrist and a physician, and she's on medication. But what can we do to support her? And I said, what have you been doing? And they told me, and it's mostly kind of they've been trying to talk her up. I said, well, what is she excited about? And they said, art. And they said, we've been sending her pictures and talking about art. I said, oh, no, you take her to art. You take her to the museum. You try to give her some energy, some excitement in her life. And as you know, that changes brain chemistry right there, doctor. Absolutely. And that person can really hopefully feel that little jolt of hope and then kind of create an upward spiral. Got it. So ignite the fire. You got it. Okay. So where do we find you again in that book of yours? Oh, yeah. It's called Making Hope Happen. Got it. Um, online, I'm at hopemonger.com. Uh, and you can tweet at hopemonger as well. Um, and then uh, I'm a Gallup senior scientist, and uh, I'm looking for hope around the world. Got it. We'll be tweeting you today. All right. Thank you so much, Doctor. Thank you, Dr. Lopez. Have right, a great bye-bye. day. Bye. Wow, that was good. Very energetic. We had a lot of hope coming off of that. We talked about hope, and it's a really interesting concept. I think it's important to understand what it is, and I think really the four keys to take away today, number one, it is optimism, and it is the power to change. So here's what hope basically is. It's the knowing that the future is going to be different, it's a thought and a feeling that you have, and then that's supported with the knowledge that you have the power to make that change. So you know the future will be different, and you have the power to make the change. That's what hope is, those two pieces. So we all have it, and 84% of the population has that. So the other people that don't have it have some other issue going on, either a brain injury, brain chemistry something, or they just need that jolt. But 84% of us do have hope, and it's got those two components. The other thing to take away is that humans are the only creature, believe it or not, that can actually feel and have hope. And that's been shown in a lot of research, so I think that's interesting. And I think it's also important as a third key component to know that IQ does not equal happiness. High IQs do not equal somebody happy, that you need to have a combination of hope and you need to have the combination of an IQ to be able to feel that that combination together is hopeful thinking, and then that's how you find the hope. You find the optimism and the power to make the changes. But IQ alone does not allow you to be happy or find hope. You need the hopeful optimism, and you need the IQ. And then it's also important to understand that it's very contagious and that it's able to be taught and it's able to be role modeled so our kids can get it. We have to be able to role model it. We have to know where we're at and that there is nothing that somebody is hopeless about, that no matter where you may think you are or somebody is and you feel that hopeless, there is that one little sliver that might excite you and you're supposed to grab onto that or help someone grab onto it and really ignite a fire of hope underneath them and that's what moves somebody forward through hopeless periods or periods where they don't see any light at the end of the tunnel. So there are lots of components that are key to hope but I think the most important thing is to know there are two pieces to it. One is that we have the optimism that we think the future will be better and that the second component is we have the power to make the changes to make the future better. So interesting concepts. Read about it. We had a great expert today, Dr. Shane Lopez. He's a PhD, senior scientist, did a lot of research on this. He has a book out called Making Hope Happen, 
and he is on a website, hopemonger.com, and he's on Twitter. You can find him all over the place. He's got uh, tons of books that he's authored and journal articles and chapters, and he's on Psychology Today. Dr. Shane Lopez, lots of great information on hope. Thank you for listening. Thank you for calling in. Love the emails, voicemails, textings, all that stuff. It really furthers our talk, our discussion, our thinking, and the way we feel about things, and our experts really weigh in. So it's a really great combination of us, you, and them. All podcasts are available on my website at www.drsophie.com and on iTunes, and so is the free phone app. So download it and get involved. Uh, again, www.drsophie.com. Give me a call anytime, 24-7, 1-855-767-4966 or 1-855-SOPHIE-NOW. My book, Side by Side, the Revolutionary Mother-Daughter Program for Conflict-Free Communication is available all over the place online. Follow me on Twitter and Facebook. Visit iTunes to download the full version of Andy Grammer's Keep Your Head Up and Don't Forget to Sweep. But you gotta keep your head up, oh, and you can let your head down, hey. You gotta keep your head up, oh, and you can let your head down, hey. I know it's hard.